happy Sunday, y'all. Happy, happy fucking Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, you guys, uh, you guys feeling doodah? <laughs> Man, I feel like crap. I don't yeah. know if it's just because, um, you know, like I spend my Saturday and then Sunday morning, like trying to re- like do research, find stories for the podcast, and I really think it's just like it's just fucking up my my groove. You yeah. know, it's like it's not plugging away in the content mines. It's a it's a it's a dark mine. Yeah, it really is. Um, but we're gonna try to stay. We're not too going too dark today. We no. have some. No, we, we have, have some good some, stuff. We have, yeah, some, we have some good we're stuff. We're gonna end uh, this episode about uh, talking about buses. Yeah, so, so it's gonna. So you know it's good. Yeah, the future is bright. <laughs> yeah, I um. Let's see. I, I helped a friend of the show, Sean, move some furniture into his apartment. Nice. Uh, and true friend. Yeah, did uh did some organizing with the Troy Housing Authority. Uh, well, people that live under the Troy Housing Authority, not with Troy Housing Authority, but, you know, there's a... Like tenant organizing? Yeah, yeah. The Taylor Homes is still, um, even through coronavirus, it's still possible that they're going to try to demolish those buildings, get everyone to move, to build new ones. What's the occupancy of that project? There's uh, four buildings. Only two of them are occupied. And I'm trying to remember, I think it's 125 units. That's a, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. I think that's how many people are in it. I, I don't have the number. And are they organizing me. to have the uh, the building rehabilitated as opposed to uh, knocked down? Well, we're, we're still really trying to figure that out, right? Because the buildings are pretty fucked up. You know, like the, but the, but a lot of it just has to do with like how they're managed. Like one thing that I learned yesterday that is just like absolutely ridiculous is like if you want air conditioning, right, in your apartment. You have to buy your own air conditioner, your own uh, window unit. There's Mm -hmm. no central air in that building. You have to buy your own window unit. So that's like a hundred bucks, right? For the cheapest one. Well, you have sometimes up to like four fifty. Right. Yeah. 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 Depending on how big the space is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's at least it's at the very least a hundred bucks. Right. Um, And then uh, they won't let you install it yourself. They they have to install it. Okay. And they'll charge you fifty dollars. Oh shit! And then uh, they want you to take it out during the winter. Makes sense. Charge you another 50 bucks. Oh, shit. So, you are paying $100 a year to li- keep a $100 AC unit in your window. That's it- outrageous. I can understand them not wanting people to install them themselves yeah. because that can be, like, deadly if you don't properly install a window unit. I get yeah. that. They're tall but buildings. Charging, yeah. charging 100 bucks round trip for that is yeah. absurd. It's yeah. absurd. You know how long it takes to install a fucking window unit? About 10 minutes. It takes 10 minutes. minutes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, and then, you know, just, like, their outlets don't work. There's, like, one elevator for, the enti- for like, each building. Oh, my God. Um, you know, it's, it's you know, they're, they're, the buildings are not in good shape, right? They were uh, built on a shoestring budget, like, probably over 50 years ago. And uh, and so, they, they need a lot of work. And maybe demolishing them is the way to go. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know enough, but... What's the city's plan for rehousing? Yeah, but, so, but this, the problem is that... It's basically illegal to make new public housing in the United States. We don't build any more straight up. The state owns the building and acts as your landlord. We just don't do that anymore. Uh, We do all the this like patchwork of bullshit uh, public private contracts. So what um, was proposed is that there's this company called Penrose uh, out of uh, Philadelphia, I believe, that will act as both developer and then property manager. And so they, they, they will bulldoze those two buildings. They want to build some like lower scale stuff with a mixed use, like commercial at the bottom. And then they say that any, not all, but any current resident in good standing 
will be given the option of moving into these new buildings. What's the difference between any and all? Well, any, as in like any of you, like any of us could uh, go get a sandwich, <laughs> right? Like any of us could go get a sandwich, but that, but that could mean just Brittany goes and gets a sandwich, yeah. right? Like, you know, like you could, when you say any, then you could have a lottery, right? He's like, yeah. any of us are able, but not all of us will, right? right. So, so, so there's, there's that, but most of the problem is that there's just like nothing in writing with the tenants that says you are guaranteed X, Y, Z. And what's more scary kind of on top of all of that is that, like I said, you know, Penrose, this development and management company, will not be the owner of the of the buildings. What will happen is that, but neither will Troy Housing Authority, right? So Troy Housing Authority sells the property or transfers the property to a a, a third corporation that is owned partially by THA and partially by Penrose. Okay. So neither neither Penrose nor THA own own it afterward. They own it together in this third new this corporation. This sounds really efficient. Yeah. And, well, and the, <laughs> right. And the the, I, the whole thing is that like you know well like one why right like that doesn't seem very efficient at all. Yeah. Well, and and it, and of course it's because it's a for profit company. Like Penrose mm-hmm. is by definition a for profit company. They have to make money. They will probably uh, they will probably make money through um the commercial ground floor stuff because mm-hmm. commercial rent rates are always very profitable but except in a pandemic yeah right so that's what i think it's going to be like where they'll make like their most of their money is just on on uh rental for ground floor commercial space but the thing is that's just like every time something like this happens there's never enough space for people to come back you know you never get a net gain of affordable housing it's always a loss. And uh, I mean, they, they are going to phase it so that you live in a building or and then they, they'll like give you vouchers to go to other THA owned properties, but they're all full. So I don't know how the hell that's going to work. And basically, it, it, it just always shakes out at the end that there's just not enough space for everyone. It just, it just oh, even no matter how much they promise this, you just, uh, you know, like in this case, what will happen? You just look at every other instance where stuff like this happens. Mm. You know, so it's not it's not just Penrose. Right, like they, they that could all be run by angels, and maybe they're all very nice people. I don't know, but the point is that, like structurally, the way that these processes work always inevitably result in fewer people having cheap housing. Well, we had talked on a previous episode about the idea of like a tenants union uh, actually being the provider of housing, like yeah. at, in its like ultimate evolution, and of course, I. I I imagine the problem is just a capital accumulation. Like, of course, it's yeah. very hard to get a bunch of renters to somehow uh, be able to throw together or otherwise appropriate enough capital to do a full building, you know, from soup to nuts and be able to own it. And not you know, to mention the way that like financing works, you have to have a person who is responsible for a mortgage, somebody who can show, you know, sufficient uh, steady income and just like all of the ways that the finance industry works in terms of buying buying yeah. housing is like not conducive to poverty um yeah I, I i would recommend here friend of the pod justin rosniak's youtube channel where he does not well there's your problem not that podcast do with not slides eat. yeah do not eat is yeah and in that one he does um i think it's a two-part yeah i think it's a two-part series on public housing which is just phenomenal that's like, part I, of his city skylines yeah yeah i use that in classes like it's just a phenomenal soup to nuts just everything from the policy and the law to uh construction considerations and costs and all that 
all together. I'll see in if one we can thing. link to that in the yeah. show notes. It's really, really good. But you know, like part of that one thing that he, that he mentions is that yeah, financing a lot of it is just illegal now. Like you're not you're like a union can't finance a construction project anymore. They used to be able to, where you could um, take the pension money that union members put in, and you could use that as collateral to for construction projects. But you're not allowed to do that anymore. Is now pensions are by law they have to go to pensions. The pension funds can't be used for anything mm. else. Um, but but like actually the largest place of minority owned property is Co-op City, just north of New York City. I think it's technically in New York City, but you know Co-op City is like a lot of black and brown people. Is that in the Bronx? There. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's in the Bronx or maybe just outside of it towards Yonkers. I don't I don't quite remember, but um, but yeah, that, that it's got a school, it's got a grocery store. I think it's got like it's a full city in of itself. And it's a whole co-op, and it was built and financed through uh, union pension collateral. So that fucking rips. We yeah, maybe it's really do, cool. But do we, a bonus on, on yeah, co-op city, or yeah, maybe should, uh, cooperation yeah. Jackson do sort of yeah. a, a tie-in between all the cooperative movements in the United States that are springing up. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, but I mean, like the but you know, I, I it would be cool if they're springing up more now. But their heyday was like in the sixties and seventies. Well, I read somewhere that the fastest growing type of business, like economic enterprise is the worker-owned co-op That's like cool. around the world like and that might be because it's going from like zero percent to like one percent yeah it doubled yeah but you know from like, six to twelve yeah it, uh so as far as pe- people who aren't like tied into this on like an organizing level um you know are concerned like what would be what's the work to be done like as far as housing organization and or like public housing plan like if you could snap your fingers and sort of bring about like a one or two or three point program, what, what do you think would be the thing to do, at least in terms of advocacy? Damn, that's a good question. So what, one thing is that Albany has a tenants union. And it's an old one. It's been around since the 70s. Um, and they do a lot of good work. So they would be the people to really ask that question to. But in Troy, well, I, I'll try not to limit just to Troy. But like one thing is, you know, any sort of code violations have to go directly to owners of property, not renters. And too many times like that gets put on renters and they usually don't have the power to do anything about it. So there's that empowered local municipalities to like just take zombie properties, you know, like the ones that are owned in between are like stuck in this weird nebulous zone of bank owned or uh, or you know absentee landlord like no one knows who so that, uh, that would solve the capital paper. accumulation yeah problem. yeah yeah so there, there you'd solve the capital accumulation problem and then like attached to that would be like right of first refusal basically the right to purchase a property by its tenants so like if the if you like you have like a three-story walk-up with three different families like give them the the first right of refusal meaning like you have to say that you don't want the property before it goes out on the market and then the the third thing i guess would be then helping finance people in that position actually being able to say yes i want to buy this property so it sounds like trip is on the right direction you know in terms of like the basic tenants there well so like trip a lot of good work happens in trip but at the same time they are also a landlord themselves Mm -hmm. and and uh i haven't heard the best things about them as landlords okay but you know like if everyone that lived in trip owned housing sort of democratically controlled that housing that would be tight that'd be really cool Hmm. uh but you know i i don't 
I don't know. There's a lot of good. Um, well, I guess it's more like habitat exper- for humanity type of uh, goal, right? In terms of just getting people the assistance to be able to own their own housing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if ownership is really you know like the end goal for me. Really, I, I think that the best actually existing model that I, I would like to see is the Dudley Street Initiative. Uh, All right, out, outside of Boston, which you know. Google it. I will. There's two. Do- there's two really good documentaries about it. That that never yeah. really sat right with me because people don't actually own. They don't own the land, right? Which is where you build equity in. Like the whole point of home ownership is that value builds over time, so that mm. you know, in a decade or two decades, you have more value than you did when. Which when you don't own the land and you only own the building on top of it which degrades in value because you know buildings wear down yeah Yeah, so that always like kind of because we watched that one documentary on uh, maybe we should like not go too much but we'll we'll, uh, link to that documentary that's on it though it's a pretty interesting project but but one quick question was it collectively owned because that's sort of the the difference here right like between personal ownership of the property you have the personal financial incentive to uh you know keep it up etc but then at the same time you have the personal financial obligation or liability of being able to keep it up etc right the whole collective thing it's like you know that's sort of the question that that ties sort of all of our future thinking together it's like how do we at once invest in the long-term quality collective maintenance of collectively owned infrastructure um well we are all economically atomized when it comes to like our actual fulfillment of needs and our individual capability of generating income yeah i i think the the response to you Brittany, from someone that would run dudley street would be that no the point of housing is not to earn equity it's to have a home right it's to have shelter and, and, you're, true, and you're tra- but- and you're trading the possibility of future equity in actually having a stable community yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that and that's uh, uh and, and it's not like they don't you don't get anything for not owning the land that your building sits on top of. Like they do landscaping and there's a lot of social programs that you get automatically entered into and being able to to participate in and uh and yeah, so it's a it's it saying, is like, pretty complicated. Like the the thing about owning like property ownership as a long-term strategy is that it get, it yields financial stability later in life when you no longer have the capacity to like work and maintain labor, a property yeah. and yeah. you know like that's for for many people their home is their retirement cuz then they'll sell it and they'll go live in, you know. Right. Um and Condo so so something. when so when like the person who is denied that I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't it, say like the person who was denied that because I know that's not the purpose of the program. And I know that it's structured that way for very good reasons. It's like a person um, who's already denied that. But, but it's they like, have this it's thing like, that fuck, allows that's them, like yeah. the one like the one element of homeownership that kind of gives you a real leg up in the world is that you now have equity as opposed to when you leave in an apartment and you have just dumped all your money into it. And now you have nothing to show for it yeah. except for having to go pay a new security deposit on a new place it's like yeah. with home ownership when you sell the home you have the equity that you've put into it yeah um, I, I think what you're describing is like this faustian bargain that banks and the federal government created in the wake of world war ii where you stop funding social programs and then this of course gets ratcheted up to a illogical conclusion in the 80s with reagan and thatcher but you like you start you stop funding social programs and you put all of the public money into subsidizing mortgages and owning property so that you enroll everybody into this constant upward trend of 
land prices, right? You make it so that at least like yeah. the, the middle class, petit bourgeoisie are all inculcated in this uh, never ending increase of property values. Like now, now you've let a lot more people into the design, their material wealth is connected to the ever increasing price of land for exactly what you were describing, because they need that money later in life when they're no longer able to work. But then that that also, of course, has the side effect that it just means housing continues to get more expensive. Which yeah. is so, right. You, it, so, it, yeah. so now new people can't enter the market because the last generation needed that price increase in order to survive their old age. Right. right? So you're constantly pitting generational wealth against each other. Yeah. Uh, because it's also, of course, that that dynamic also uh, encourages generational wealth and the concentration of wealth within families well, and it, stuff like that. That was what I was going to say. Is like the, yeah. the the real negative impact on this, on like the the broadest of timelines, is that the wealth is you know what it is. It's like it's all based on speculation on the market and stuff. But it, it, as housing prices go up and up and up, the people who have the by literal luck of it being in in inheriting a property from someone who owns it versus inheriting a debt from somebody that doesn't, you know, like the disparity because of inheritance becomes greater and greater and greater right. because right. eventually this, these properties are going to move, whether it goes from, you know, selling to somebody who is able to, you know, like a millennial that got like a crazy good income job because they're super lucky or whatever, or, you know, just eventually bequeathed to someone because uh, their parent owned it, in which case it's like, okay, now you've got the whole intergenerational wealth disparity happening more and more and more. Yeah. And then, you know, like the three of us here all own the place that we live, right? Lucky as hell. Yeah, which is super lucky for our generation. But it's also because we don't, we decided to live in Troy, New York. Oh, that's, right? I think, a huge part yeah, of it. Yeah, we live is. in the Rust Belt. And like, like Brittany and I's uh, mortgage, which includes, you know, in escrow, like all the insurances and all the taxes, all of that combined, and we pay an astronomical amount of taxes. Is more, less than a two bedroom apartment yeah, downtown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. And and is is less than a closet in Brooklyn. You know? Yeah. So so that, but that, that's of course a function of how many job prospects we have up here, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so. But at the same time, it's like I have to say luck because you know, like out of all of my friends, like not all of my friends, like the vast majority of my friends can't own. Oh yeah. yeah. So yeah. you know, like I, I consider myself like really lucky. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. And, and he's like even this modest like grab of capital on our part is still way out of reach of most people like yeah. it's it's fucking stupid it's, and, it's... It, yeah and uh i've been spending the last several weeks like um doing some real micro shit in the basement <laughs> you know getting really dirty uh, i was talking about earlier like i'm ripping apart like a this ancient ac system and i'm stripping all the um flaking paint from my ceiling with like a sandblaster and i'm taking up the flooring and i'm doing all this like demo and like labor myself and while i certainly like feel very like hearty and like american grit and like working class like uh work ethic like as i'm down there night after night weekend after weekend just sweating my balls off the fact that i can do that is because i actually you know from a marxist perspective sit in the middle class and i'm able to extract enough wealth from this economy such that in our current housing market i have the privilege of being able to own my own home you know and so it's like 
Yeah, it's just shit's crazy, and we got to figure out a different way. That's uh, this may not be the, the the most entertaining segment of Iron Weeds, but for me, it's like these are the kinds of things I'd like to be able to you know shed some light on and try to drill down into because the project of like what we're going to need to do as a collective generation, you know, as a nation, like into the twenty first century, it comes down to like this sort of nitty gritty like housing policy and like figuring yeah. out how we frame the 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 struggle yeah we're gonna and it's get one of the creative. reasons that we are in many ways a regional show because those models will look different in different parts of the country and that's one of the things that i think has made building left momentum in the united states quite challenging is that we have so many regional differences here such that just housing policy in San Francisco is going to be wildly different than just housing policy in true New York. And to treat treat that culturally as if it's something that we can just have these big national debates about and come up with the answers to them is uh, maybe not as feasible for us as it is for, like, let's say, lots of European countries. And so they will be regional questions and regional debates, and the answers to them will look very different depending on where you live. And that's why, you know, we hope that the show is relevant to people who live outside of Troy, New York, but also that it gives you that lens of like, well, here's what here's what justice and housing looks like for us. Yeah. And I think what we will find, though, that like there are very interesting similarities in weird places, right? Like Detroit looks sure. a lot like Uzbekistan. <laughs> really right where uh you know like you concentrate a shit ton of capital into like a downtown and you make a bunch of star architect you know like really fancy looking buildings that cost an arm and a leg to either rehab or build from scratch yeah like and, in uzbekistan yeah yeah no it's, <laughs> I, I know it's true yeah I know being, I know. <laughs> there's like the, the largest uh freestanding tent structure Uzbekistan and it's a, an entire indoor mall and like fun complex under a single climate controlled tent because they you know it's the Siberian steppe right so if you want to have so like a, a bunch of yurt. fun it's yeah like, it's, it's like, like a, a circus it's, yurt it's yeah it's just like like essentially like a kilometer wide yurt that's uh, sort of rich. it does well like yeah there's <laughs> it's like sort of an incredible like feat of engineering but then also only like the elite rich get to like fly in and, and play with it right and, and the same holds with like detroit where like the like there's like seven square miles of downtown detroit actually is livable and has a lot of social services and in fact you know read uh p.e moskowitz's uh how to kill a city you have like an entire non-profit that essentially takes over all of the responsibilities of what should be the municipal government and they just like do everything in the interest of the few capitalists that run everything and then they just like send it to the city for rubber stamp approval like it's it's a total puppet state in in detroit so and 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 that looks like like the middle east and and eastern europe like they all have like a very similar of capital problem like that but then again you also like have completely different rules governing those things right they look the same but they're constructed in completely different ways yeah i remember there's an adverse acquisition movement that was also going on in in, uh detroit where people were trying to go down there and like squat empty buildings for enough uh Mm -hmm. time to be able to get them and turn them into you know cooperatively owned housing or or otherwise there's been a lot of that done in texas too because texas has really interesting squatters rights laws interesting yeah Yeah. right yeah again that's gonna be another instance where like it's different everywhere else because in the united states each state has a different squatter law and they're they're really really 
short. Basically, you have to live, the laws are usually written with the phrase openly and notoriously. Conspicuously. Yeah. yeah. And, and, notoriously. And, notoriously. Yeah. <laughs> openly and notoriously. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, live on a piece of land, and then, like, you just own it after living openly and notoriously. Notorious. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, of course, that, that those timelines are much shorter out west because that's how we took a bunch that's of land from Native Americans. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's... Like, yeah, you know, it's how we stole a bunch of land is through those laws. And now you, we can, you know, like the urban proletariat could actually steal that land back through those same same laws, which is kind of funny. These are just like still on the books 150 years later. Wow. Yeah. Cowboy street justice. Yeah. Whereas in New York, it's like 10 years or something, I think is the... That's a long, that's a long, long time to be notorious. To, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, I own. I already own where I live, and I, I'm not that notorious about where I live. So I have two brief bicycling anecdotes to tie together uh, as it relates to the conversation that uh, we could maybe get into around uh, fate or coincidence or curse or hex i heard that uh the baby witches i'm using scare quotes i don't really even know what that means i have to tell Uh, you how deeply offensive this entire (laughs) shenanigan this entire episode has been to me but anyway go go ahead yeah i read about how they uh they hexed the fae which i don't even know who they are uh and you know what if you know what the fae folk are is that like um it's fairies is that like link link is is you know from zelda is he fae with because the ears like he said i no, i think that's like elven I don't know. Uh, don't what... look at me. I don't know. <laughs> so, oh, oh, no, uh, no, like Saria. fairies. Saria. Saria. Just, just, hey, just, be- is a... <laughs> just because I'm five four does not mean I know anything <laughs> about these weird, these weird semi well, uh, 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 anti-Semitic uh, uh, tropes well, of like who's who in like, fairy tale land. Uh, Legolas was pretty tall, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, again, um, don't look at me. I don't know. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm getting way off topic. Um, so the first time I ever got hit by a car. Was, wow, that is off topic. Yeah, okay. Was when I was um I was probably 17 at the time. How tall was the driver? Um, no, I was probably like 15 at the time cuz I had, <laughs> I had just gotten uh into uh <laughs> into ri- riding around the city. But I had uh I it was This is mo- in Worcester? This was in Worcester. It was Mother's Day and I was biking Rude. home from hanging out at my friend John Brand's house and I wanted to get a Mother's Day card for my mom to, and come back on that Sunday and like give it to her. And um I had been riding around on a like road bike that I had built at like the Troy Bike Rescue equivalent in Worcester called Worcester Earn a Bike at the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Business Empowerment Center, uh, and I had no helmet. Um, God, that's the most Worcester thing I've ever. Yeah. Worcester <laughs> Earn a Bike. It's- yeah, it, it fucking rules. It's such a good program. Um, I think it's still going, uh, but I had no uh, helmet, and I had not been riding around with a helmet for the previous like year and a half while I like you know tooled around the whole city. That's after- good. You got to have a helmet. And my friend said, you know, just, just wear this helmet. And he gave me his bicycle helmet. And on that morning, like 15 minutes after putting on that bicycle helmet, I like hit a car taking a quick left in front of me going real fast, maybe like 24 ish miles an hour. And I just put a crater in that car and my helmet just exploded into like multiple chunks. And like, it totally like saved my fucking life. Yeah. Cause otherwise Um, your head would have exploded into multiple chunks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, I'm here today because my friend like, let's send that friend some flowers or something. Do we have, do we have that person's address? Maybe send him a, 
Get uh, them some iron weed send stickers. Send them some stickers, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm bringing it up because this week I paid it forward and I had my old helmet, which I had thought I had lost, and it ended up getting recovered. I had put it in like a dumb spot somewhere at work. Um, and uh, he came over to, to make a beat with me. And when he left on his bicycle, um, I gave him my old helmet. A day later, he gets hit by a car. Holy and shit. his helmet saves his life. And so, like... I don't know. That's some synchronicity right there. Yeah. yeah. That's I mean, pretty wild. Like we had talked to, I think on last episode or two episodes ago about how um, the dream board thing is like realer than I'd like it to be uh-huh. uh, in terms of just putting out those vibrations, et cetera. But it's odd that like twice in a row, like the, it, the this type of thing had happened where someone had not been wearing a helmet for a long time and then put one on and then it miraculously oh my kept God. them do from you think head injury. The, do you think the helmets are causing the accident? Who knows? That could be the other, uh, you know, tr- like thought into this. Big helmet. Well, I mean, around. it's at least possible that like if you've been riding without a helmet and then you ride with one on, maybe it makes you a, like slightly less like more risky? aware of or just like your focus is maybe oh, i don't know you're yeah. like adding a new a new Sensory, element yeah. to the yeah I there's mean, also the theory that a, a a a driver riding past a cyclist without a helmet will notice that they're not wearing a helmet and be like oh shit that person's living dangerously like i'm going to give them a wide berth but if you see somebody you know the big you know like hat on and looking real official you just sort of like blend it out of your mind because you're like oh they're they're safe and then you turn right in front of them and (laughs) and cause them to eat shit yeah the the, uh in countries in europe where biking is like super super big like uh what was it amsterdam yeah yeah yeah. no one wears helmets yeah yeah no one wears a helmet and it's mostly because like everyone is biking and so like there aren't really cars to worry about yeah yeah it's it's less dangerous in general to 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 bike so really it's only people that are uh like racing wear helmets and stuff like that yeah. The world is your helmet in that respect. It is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or the, the built environment is uh, is your helmet. Urban planning is your helmet. Wear a helmet, folks. Yeah, wear a helmet. Yeah. Wear a goddamn Your head helmet. is important and we want to keep it safe. Yeah. It's, got, yeah. it's where you keep all your ideas. Yeah. For, from a strictly materialist perspective, helmets get the goods. Yes. And keep, and keep them good. <laughs> and they keep your goods good. Yeah. So speaking of no, no, that transition won't work at all. Uh, here's a bad thing that should that it will stay bad for as long as it exists. Sinclair Broadcasting. Oh shit! Yeah. We have not really. I don't think we've talked much about Sinclair Broadcasting on the show. We have talked a bit about local news because that's kind of a an intellectual interest of yours, David. Yeah. Um, local news and the way it's rotting the nation's uh, uncle's brains. And you can't put on a helmet that'll keep you safe from local news. No, no, no. I tried. I tried. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, the tinfoil. Yeah. Not effective. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Sinclair Broadcasting became pretty infamous, fa- infamous a few Notorious. years back when there was um, somebody made a really, really smart compilation of like these dozens of different local news outlets. Uh, anchors saying the exact same thing, like this very scripted thing. And Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso, Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we, we are concerned, concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible. One-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More 
alarming. Some media outlets publish the same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same stories simply aren't true without checking facts first. Unfortunately, some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 So Sinclair Broadcasting, you're ne- very rarely are you going to uh, turn on the television and you know, like local news brought to you by Sinclair Broadcasting, right? Yeah, or, they're not they're not upfront with how who owns them. Yeah, yeah. This is a company that stays in the background, right? What you see is like your local Fox affiliate, right? Which makes all of this way more confusing, yeah. right? Is that like they'll have like an NBC or ABC or Fox, like, and then like usually the channel that they're on thing, right? So like you know ABC nine or Fox ten or whatever, right? But those. Uh, are mostly anachronisms like i don't I, I don't remember what like the ownership rights of like those cross-cutting like those other conglomerates right run but your local news itself is owned by a company and as of now about 40 percent of households get a local broadcast news station from this company called sinclair broadcasting which in 20 20- 18 i believe merged with the tribune company to to get to that 40 percent number so like uh, here in albany the albany market has a sinclair broadcasting station i think it's the nbc one uh, i believe i don't i don't quite recall and like pretty much again 40 percent of america has a sin there may not be the only but they the, the uh, sinclair does reach 40 percent of the world of the country and that is possible only because of bill clinton's repeal of the 1996 uh, or no, sorry, it's not a repeal of the act, but it's the 1996 Com- Telecommunications Act, which made it possible for a single company to own more than 25% of a media market. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Appreciate you. Yeah. Big ups, Bill. King shit. Yeah. So like, it really is like kind of up there with the crime bill. I mean, like the crime bill definitely directly killed people, but like the handmaiden to it is this 96 Telecommunications Act, which like propagandizes people into uh voting like, for republicans voting for, for republicans lives, yeah. yeah yeah and making more of those crime bills possible right and so like why this really matters is because all of these like sinclair has a political leaning it's and very it, conservative and it's hyper conservative it makes fox news seem like a libtard i mean like i'm sorry like it really <laughs> does yeah it does like absolutely. they're terrifying and, and what's fucked up is that people by and large american media consumers trust their quote local news way more, more way more yeah, so they're, they're gumshoe than, i see them yeah. at the protests and they watch it way more like it's, like it's like 10 times the time. more yeah like, like, like pe- people are scared of you know fox news like the actual cable you know they're they're like nightly news hosts and stuff but sinclair is where the actual dirty work is being done yeah like average average cable news w- viewing like all three of the major ones together i think is like six million or something but local and broadcast news is like in the tens and 12 million like it's double triple you tell me people just like leave it on in their house like the local news yeah all the time yeah oh god yeah see well, see, this, I, I is go, all, this, is go, a, this is a 
generational difference yeah, yeah see right. yeah, our, our generation we go straight to the source i just leave the police scanner on all the time <laughs> yeah constantly yeah, right. which by the way had a interesting propagandizing effect of like making me really sympathize with the cops <laughs> like since this whole like protest shit that's broke terrible, out, yeah, terrible. That's disgusting. but like that thing my off. god like listening to the uh the local news scanner cops jobs suck so much they really do it's so crazy i mean like it does not uh, well that's for, why we have to continue to allow them to beat the shit out of people because they have to have some perk there has to be some kind of perk for doing that difficult work that, that was what i was going to say is like it doesn't forgive the the incredible fucked up shit that they do but like god i don't want that job i have to oh say having god. done having watched the scanners for protests and stuff doing like comms work yeah it is the the array of things that they get called to do yeah it's like one or two 236.8, we got somebody who says that their prescription glasses were stolen. They they, they want you to <laughs> come. <laughs> it was like, the, 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 the Rite Aid is out of Minute Maid orange juice. Please respond. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> Which is, you know, like, part of the, the critique of the police, right? Is that, like, we take all too, these too social things, problems yeah. and we turn them into yeah, policing yeah. problems uh, right but but, but let's yeah get back it's, to, it's fucked up. so the reason that we yeah. brought up sinclair in the first place is because one of the sinclair broadcasting groups shows uh america this week hosted by eric bowling who's actually a former fox news contributor um total coincidence there yeah right is set to air an episode on stations across the country Supporting the baseless conspiracy theory of the pandemic, which was a viral video that actually got banned on a bunch of like Facebook bandit because it was so um, outrageously like wrong, wrong and like dangerous. <laughs> Sounds yeah. like a pandemic. Yeah, nice. very nice. Yes, yes. So CNN came out with the article, basically laying out this scandal, and then I think it was only like less than a day ago, it was like a couple, like 19 hours ago or something from this recording, Politico ran a story that said that this is now being pulled back. Yes. Right. So that's like the, the overarching story here, but so like, the way it but works we should get show, into like this. So specifics. America this week posts the show online before it is broadcast over the weekend. Right. So it went up online and essentially bowling and the show got a ton of pushback from Everyone. <laughs> From everyone for, like, airing this really dangerous, absurd conspiracy theory that Dr. Fauci created the coronavirus. <laughs> like, and that, that is not an exaggeration. No, like, it's like, really, like, really, that's that's the story. That's is, the story. Is that, what was it? Like, he worked with the Chinese government to develop... To, and like, Bill he, Gates. Yeah, like, he sold them, he sold them the coronavirus. Yeah, like, he's been shipping coronavirus to all of these Chinese labs. And and so, like, part of this is a misunderstanding of the way that, like, science works, which is that, like, yes, that bio, <laughs> biomedicine yeah. research includes sending samples of things to different laboratories across yeah. the world that we study them. Yeah. Um, yeah. BSL uh, 3 and 4. Guess what? That's one of the reasons that SARS isn't a fucking problem anymore is yeah. because we, like, research it and we... Anyway. Um, you just imagine, like, Anthony Fauci in the basement and you just, like, his, his wife's, like, knocking on the door and, like... Tony, Tony, what are you doing? He's like, I, I have to mail all of these, all these viruses to China. Excuse me. Like, we have, like, a big project to do so that eventually I can get on the news, like, <laughs> a bunch. That's my whole thing is, like, I really want attention. So this is how I'm going to do it. Just please, like, just throw the food under the door or something. Like, I'll eat later. Like, come on, Tony. No. <laughs> like, I don't know what, like, I, the, the. Is this to start a race war too? Like I don't understand the no, no, motivations. It's it's a 
of this. Uh, well, maybe we, I, sh- I should have watched the viral YouTube video. We probably should have watched it. Watch it. We probably should have watched the pandemic video. Hang on one second. Let yeah, me yeah, see if I... If you ask me, I think uh, Dr. Fauci just really wanted to get in a really long-term row with our big baby Huey president. Yeah. Because he thought it would be cool and fun. Yeah. He's just sitting in his basement with all the coronavirus in tubes. And he's like, oh, I hate our Cheeto man president. (laughs) I hate what he's done to our norms and all all the different ways that, like, he, he... disrespects the office and the resolute desk and he eats mcdonald's on it and i hate him oh i hate him and so i'm gonna i'm gonna kill a half a million people and infect like 14 million just so that like so he i'll just stick it to him like what yeah. like what <laughs> like, okay I, so so this this woman who is in this uh quote-unquote documentary she was also the one who said, I don't know if anybody will remember this, but she said wearing the mask literally activates your own virus. You're getting sick from your own reactivated coronavirus expressions. And if it happens to be SARS COVID-2, then you've got a big problem. Yeah, you know, like, I just said, have um, like, a, like a bunch of viruses in me and sometimes I activate just activating them, them. By, huffing, by huffing my own hair. And you she know, also said, why would you close the beach? You've got sequences in the soil, in the sand. You've got healing microbes in the ocean, in the salt water. That's insanity. Every single grain of sand is an orb. And they're all channeling <laughs> through their, their quartz characteristics, yeah. healing powers. They're all crystals. Think about it. So basically during this interview, so Mikovitz, whatever this doctor's name, um, tells Bowling that Fauci had over the past decade manufactured and shipped coronavirus to Wuhan, China. And the big like criticism of, I guess, the interview is that the host like never pushes back against any of her claims. Right. Um, at one point, he says he he notes that she is making a quote hefty claim. Right. And he, he says that, like that, that's that's him pushing back. And, right? and yeah, like, when... hefty, hefty, hefty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What... <laughs> Which also is like, so is the virus in you already, and you have to inhale it with a mask, or it, does it come from China? I don't. I don't know. I think that these local news stations and Sinclair in particular should keep the baseless uh, conspiracy uh, generation and dissemination to the pros. Podcasters. Yes. The immortal science. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Stay in your fucking lane. Just stay in your lane, local news. (laughs) (laughs) And then what's stranger still is then when people push back on Boeing and Sinclair saying like, why are you giving airtime to this, this quack? They're like, oh, I didn't, I hadn't heard of that, that viral video. Like, they just, like, feigned yeah, total is, ignorance which of... Which is so weird and dumb. Yeah, like, it's like, where else would have you heard of this person? This, yeah, this woman is not, like, a famous, like, she's famous because of the pandemic video, so... Yeah, so, like, why would you, inter- like, interview this person in the first place? But he swears up and down that, yeah. like, he had never, he had never heard of, what, what video? Planned, what, what video? Even though it was, all, it happened in May, it was all over the news, so... Yeah, so I, I don't know what other perspective this person brings to uh, the topic of, like, dealing with the coronavirus other than masks activate your own coronavirus and that uh, the beach is full of healing crystals and microbes <laughs> that you need to, like, roll around in in order to defeat the coronavirus. I like that's it's absolute, a- absolute clown shoes. I don't I just don't. I don't yeah. understand it at all. And the, and I mean, like, and that's the thing about Sinclair, right? Is that 
they have these um like must i think they're called must runs where you know you do your local news you talk about you know like dog park opening up or you know like you know your usual race baiting uh, local man local news eats yeah. a lot of waffles <laughs> right yeah 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 or you know your 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 usual uh, uh Home ra- ra- race or... baiting crime yeah. reporting and then like from the satellite here's a car chase from a place that you've never lived you know like stuff like that but then on top of that they had they run all of these uh stories like this one that are meant to oh, be so this was a must run yeah ah yeah where you just like sit de- where it's just like some nice man that looks really trusting that is just going to tell you a story about like something very interesting it's you know it's very like um television magazine store sort of thing like 20 minutes like 60 minutes or 2020 or something like that you know and and, it's, and it has the air of of authority right and 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 sincerity and authenticity which is like this really potent mix that people will will believe whatever they say because that's the thing is that local unlike fox news which is like sort of a known entity and you really like listen to it or watch it and tell other people about what you learned on fox news as a as a identity thing right you're like i'm a fox news viewer you're an idiot right you know like i'm a free thinker that doesn't listen to the mainstream media i listen to the and watch the most watched cable news channel which is not the mainstream media right that's the lesser watched cable news shows right yeah so you know so you do that you do that whole uh double think thing right but with local news and sinclair what you've done is you've taken this all these different local networks that have built trust over years and years and years right Mm -hmm. like your local news anchor is well is usually well known among the people that usually watch local news like they you hear their name all the time they they make an effort to become like a personality they, they're a local celebrity you know, like they show up like you you might even recognize them and you might have actually met them once right like this is a very affective relationship and then you trade on that with this national thing right so if you believe you know, like if you, if you love your local weatherman and the funny thing that he says about like you know whether it's going to rain or not, you know, and, and like oh gosh, you know, like he's just so I love it on Halloween where he dresses up and like gives us the weather report for the trick or treaters, right? You're trading on that to then say also the coronavirus is a Chinese biological weapon developed by our own government, right? <laughs> like, like that, like they, yeah. they, they're in Dr. Fauci in particular, yeah, Dr. Fauci in particular in his basement because he hates the Cheeto man, right? Like that, like, like people are, are more likely to believe that not because they're dumb, but because they trust someone else that they get a lot of good news from yeah. like actually well, not good news as in like good news because most of the stuff that local news covers is bad news right but like like actual reported news right and and so they because they've done a lot of good trustworthy things they're going to believe this also it's super super sinister yeah it's almost like consent manufacturing Ooh, mm, yeah something along those lines yeah yeah, pretty wild, pretty wild shit. I remember we talked to, I think it was last episode, about the uh, oppo dump uh, that Trump did Fauci. Yeah. So, you know, this is such a, a weird, like, thing that Trump in particular has been doing, where he you know, goes from holding up and appointing and keeping people in his orbit 
until they can be used as something to throw under his like campaign bus. Right. And then he just does it. <laughs> yeah. and he's ruthless about it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he's like extremely um, aggressive uh, on a personal level. Like I remember uh, it, and, and often just this is like some of the, the greatest examples of like his explicit like racist like attacks. Uh, like I remember he, he had Omarosa on his whole like campaign and like you know as an advisor and then was like low IQ Omarosa. He tried to try to sell a book. Bunch of bullshit if you ask me you know she was never any good and like yeah. after he like went to bed for her like like kept her like as close as he could just so was that one of the only people from the apprentice days who would have anything to do with him yeah Omarosa, yeah. yeah yeah it's 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 fucked up uh and it's what a, he did to the mooch yeah, yeah yeah remember the mooch oh the mooch, the mooch. poor guy yeah, like like 48 hours in heaven oh like, um <laughs> you'd be uh, the press secretary and then poof gone somewhat newsworthy Michael Cohen is uh, yes. now under the gun uh, from Trump where they're, they're his personal trying, lawyer. Yeah. yeah, his personal lawyer who's now in uh, prison, I think, hasn't been released, whereas a couple of the other people that were in prison have been because of COVID and stuff. He is drafting a book like that's supposed to be tell all or whatever, and he's trying to launch it right before the election, you know, to get his grift. Um, and uh, Trump is trying to have him legally uh, censured. Uh, yeah. on a Which national is not security basis legal. or something like you can't yeah, anybody's it, allowed to write a book yeah there's what, no legal mechanism for like unless they're saying top secret things which he's not so yeah totally wild yeah and the fact that like our first amendment like hangs in the balance of like four different griffs that oh, aren't that, like don't that are like intersecting and <laughs> contradictory yeah it's yeah, really it's, it's really it's just exactly the world we what deserve, we deserve. Yeah, it's like oh. we're gonna like and like there's gonna be like supreme court hearings that are like national inquire versus you know the hulk or something you know like assange is you know, still like, in custody yeah you yeah. know assange is going to be treated as an enemy yeah, but he's of the got state. the brits right he's well, he's currently being held by the Brits, right? Yeah. You know, uh, but so like that, on so that's behalf a daily of the mail. U.S., you know, I security mean, state. But now that we're like executing federal prisoners, I think our it's going to be probably getting harder to get other countries to uh, uh, what's what Extra, extradite people extradite to us. Extradite people, yeah. 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 I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, yeah we'll that, see. That does Bre- change Brexit's going to shake things up in a real hard line. Um, and, you know, <sighs> like they, it, Britain and the UK might just be entirely absorbed into the uh, American hegemony in terms of like imperial project. Uh, because, like, for example, they're uh, already been meeting with uh, Blue Cross Blue Shields, uh, trying to potentially nationalize their or yeah. unnationalize, privatize, privatize yeah. their uh, national health service. Good times. Yeah, they're yeah. going to love that. <laughs> Good times. RIP to a real RIP to, to John Lewis. You know, I, I, I remember feeling so angry with John Lewis uh, in 2016 when Bernie was running and he was like, well, I never saw him at the civil rights movement. But, you know, it's, it, it is still like an incredible blow to lose him, especially at this time. And he was a really towering figure in the civil rights movement. And, you know, Probably one of the last good congressional representatives. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of those left. So yeah, somebody who dedicated their entire life to a um, explicit uh, pursuit of justice on like the federal level. Yeah, you know, which is commendable to yeah, say the least. Certainly. One other dumb thing John, uh, John Lewis did though is he did that sit-in for gun rights or yeah. gun, uh, gun control. Yeah, but that was in, like with in the entire Congress. Congress right? It was with uh, it was with a couple of them. Oh. Like, there were only a couple. It was like, why don't we use this unaccountable secret list to control who has guns? Yeah. Like that, that sucked. 
but you know it is of course on the whole of like you know getting like the shit beat out of you in selma you know like you, you get, nearly dying for the civil you, rights movement you get yeah. a pass yeah yeah, yeah. So yeah, so so rest in power, John Lewis. Um, and this this piece coming out of the Intercept that was published uh, a couple of days ago by Jean Theo Harris, uh, titled "The Right Way to Honor John Lewis: Restore and Extend the Voting Rights Act." It's a really interesting conversation in this piece about you know now there's talk about renaming the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, which is currently named for a Confederate general uh, and Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. So maybe worth considering renaming it, I would say. But now you know a, a lot of people calling to rename it for Representative Lewis. And this piece is basically just like, what if instead of renaming things after people, we fixed the Voting Rights Act? Because since it is, you know, since it was overturned by the Supreme Court, states have just gone absolutely wild with rolling back voting rights. And it is to the point where we are not a functioning democracy in this country anymore. We just aren't like it's 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 absurd to say that we have a healthy functioning democracy. Yeah, like many states in this country don't pass like Jimmy Carter's own test about like whether oh, yeah. or not you're a you're a democracy or not yeah, like, when it comes like north Car- north carolina is not a democracy right yeah and then when it comes to the the primaries you know with the party system like those don't even pass like at all yeah like, those no, are like yeah. even more egregious but yeah I mean, we saw this this year with like just the outrageous you know people waiting in lines for hours and hours and hours just to vote in the in the democratic primary yeah and there, there's this really telling anecdote in the piece about how was it 2015 or something where um barack obama is uh, overseeing the um uh unveiling of a rosa parks statue it's actually in 2013 2013 okay and where what was it in it was in the so so here i'll just read okay. a little the bit from the article statuary yeah so on February 27, 2013, in a rare moment of bipartisanship, then House, Speaker, then House Speaker John Boehner, Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell, Representative Nancy Pelosi, John Lewis, and others joined President Obama to dedicate a statue of Rosa Parks in the U.S. Capitol Sanctuary Hall, the first full-size statue of a black person to be installed there. On that very same day, across the street, the Supreme Court heard, heard arguments in Shelby County v. Holder. The case was brought to challenge two portions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act dealing with something called federal preclearance, which is essentially where certain states that have a history of voter suppression being racist as fuck, being racist as fuck, they can't just change their voting laws however they want. It has to be pre-cleared by, you know, federal courts. And so later on that year, the Supreme Court struck down that portion of the law that subjected municipalities to preclearance. And yeah, since then, just everything has been gutted. There are like now every every fucking election cycle we have fewer and fewer protections for especially like black voters and poor voters yeah there's like three dozen states that in the last like six years have passed further uh restrictions on voting rights right so this anecdote that the thea harris i don't know if i'm saying the journalist's name right um uses but you know between this rosa park statue and the voting rights act is is like so emblematic of the entirety of our like contemporary politics, mm. you know, it's like this, this aesthetic, you know, this kind of veneer of justice and, and progress that is ultimately about what we call things and how we, and how things look and like what the face of the person who's in charge of something is while you have this absolute gutting of the actual structures of justice that ensure parity and equality just decaying from the inside out and we are doing nothing to fix any of that. Well, we've we've solved 
racism and we're now in a post-racial society so we don't need to worry about that is a good point racial or class disparities you know you know happening and and that is evidenced by the fact that nobody's trying to make voting rights more restrictive (laughs) right yeah yeah it's just not happening yeah no this is like pure beto politics right it was like it's not like the only thing beto has ever gotten passed when he was in congress was uh renaming a post office or something like it's the only thing he was capable of doing then becoming ten thousand spiders yes yes which was quite a feat right uh friends of the pod will remember that he became he was he's really always has been (laughs) right um a collection of of ten thousand spiders but um yeah you're i think you're absolutely right Brittany. right it's it's a um it's just emblematic of like just like a larger democratic politics of you know like more women jailers you know (laughs) yeah this is this is actually from the piece this is a good quote um there's a dangerous bait and switch these kinds of honors can perform. While they celebrate the courage and lifetime service freedom fighters like Rosa Parks and John Lewis embodied, they place the struggle firmly in the past and center the public's task on memorializing, papering over contemporary struggles and present day suffering. Yeah, and you know, I would really add to that. I think it's really connected is Hillary Clinton would do this a lot, but I, I see most politicians like picking this up now, which I, I don't see too many people noticing, which is strange. But they they do this thing where they will list the injustices, right? They will describe all the bad things that have happened. They'll say all the right statistics. And that's it, right? They'll yeah. just they'll acknowledge the problem and then say something mealy mouthed about like overcoming the racial division in our country through patriotism or something like that. And then, like, it, and people just sort of, like, fill in their own minds that, like, oh, this person knows the problem, so they're going to solve it, right? But they don't, right? We're actually going to talk about this in our bonus today, but there's a, we're, we're going to discuss this piece on class reductionism. And in it, they reference a time when, you know, Hillary Clinton said, oh, to, this was to Bernie Sanders during 2016, said, oh, so what, if we break up the big banks, that'll end racism? And it's that exact same move, which Absolutely. is like, well, I mean, it'll help. Like, do you have any idea how... Racist, how formative banking has been <laughs> yeah. in like y- y- you know maintaining the maintaining the racial divisions in this country and like keeping yeah. black people d- politically and economically disenfranchised yeah you can't tell me that like the robo signing from wells fargo of like these n- no income no job you know like ninja loans like how racist those were and Where redlining you... like, yeah hello also a bunch of fucking redlining yeah, <laughs> yeah. so so it is like this incredible that's such an cr- incredibly disingenuous thing to say right yeah. oh so you think breaking up the big banks it's the same thing. It's like, well, as long as I shout enough that the problem is racism and we all have to be less racist, then which we do, which we do. But then that work becomes renaming bridges and putting up statues and not doing the actual hard work of dealing with our fucking broken ass justice system that goes all the way right up to the Supreme Court, which somehow managed to. And, you know, this was like Obama Supreme Court. This was not like what happens if, you know, Trump gets elected again and then the Supreme Court's going to be really bad. Like, no, it already fucking sucks. It already sucks. So. Yeah. And this is like what um, happens when, yeah, you, you, you just assume that it's all semiotics and that you don't have any sort of like stake in making history right it it really is sort of going back to that like the end of history kind of feel to it Mm -hmm. right that all of the big the big strides already happened now we're just maintaining it and part of that is recognizing those past improvements by naming things after 
the big wins and the people who made those big wins, right? But it's and tidying up the the unsightly remnants of that past where we right. were racist, like the you know the when the we Pettus were Bridge. Racist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Now we just have to clean up, you know, the the detritus of that bygone era. Yeah, and 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 the way that you know, like when Hillary Clinton says like racism, right? Like where is that racism located? Right. And it's like in our hearts. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. In our words. Yeah. <laughs> in right. the names in individu- of our bridges. <laughs> in, yeah. Yeah. In individuals, hearts and minds. Right. Yeah. Uh, in the deplorables. Yeah. And and, um, and and so like anti-racism in that in respect. In chrome gland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was like the real racism is that the billionaires are only want white children's adrenochrome. And I think that's fucked up. It is. It's wrong, really. Yeah. Okay, boy. No, never mind. I'm not gonna. (laughs) Don't go there. No. Yeah. But you know, like the, the, the idea that like the brand Nike has like a BLM statement matters more than like the voting rights fucking act is like is ridiculous, right? And like this goes all the way down to Tanahasi Coates, right? Like when he would write shit in the Atlantic about how a grill out at Howard University mattered more than the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. Like, he said that. Like, that's crazy. And part of it was, like, I think, deliberately flippant and, sure. you know, rhetorical to, like, make an argument or whatever. it was also very personal. But, it, and was it was, like, yeah. It was what mattered to him in that, in that moment, moment. You know, because he could recognize the black excellence in practice, you know, in right now, the material reality. Yeah. though, though I, But it has obviously, I think, fed into this rename a bridge for john lewis sort of act, uh, behavior instead of actually doing stuff that protects people from racists that will always be with us right it's, it's, this was something that brianna joy gray i think a, a point that she made was like it's not that like we need to get rid of every racist in the united states because we're, we can't do that right what you have to do is make sure that those racists don't have power over you yeah right and that and that is the project of collective anti-racist action that is why breaking up the banks will actually make a step toward eliminating racism because we're concerned i think as leftists about structural racism and how when everything goes right and normal we get racist outcomes whereas if you just like if you take this perspective where like the project is to know convince every single living breathing human being to not be racist you're never gonna win like it's just it's too much yeah i want to say we'll get into that i think more more in the bonus episode when we talk about class reductionism because i think that'll be an interesting conversation but i do think that there are a lot of parallels between this sort of style over substance mode of politics that we find ourselves in now and this battle that's happening between like liberal and progressive and leftist people over like how these problems get solved legislatively right because that's ultimately you can't legislate racism like you can't make it illegal to think racist things um and so so failing that where legislatively do wins come from right like they have to attack uh economic structures they have to attack you know the court system yeah it's it's not even like picking your battles right it's picking the war right it's like what sort of argument or like you know not even argument but like like the whole thing, like what do you want to win? You know, what are you trying to get control over? And is it like how we, how, what we think? Because that sounds like a really bad 
path to go down but if it's like who owns what and who has power over who and what like that that's a real war that i would like to fight yeah yeah but like doing this like white fragility like one hr department at a time like getting people to feel guilty and like like constantly thinking about their racism like yes we should be thinking about like ways to not be to be less racist but at the well, same but also time a lot of like, that work has the opposite effect yeah. which is that it increases racial tensions in workplaces and puts white people like completely on edge and has the opposite intended effect which is to make them very hardened in their already existing biases and like reactionary which doesn't mean that work shouldn't be done. It's that it's clearly insufficient because it's not having the intended effects. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, is that the fault of white people? Absolutely. Can we legislate what every single individual white person thinks for the rest of history? Absolutely, because we have this technology that Elon Musk made. <laughs> with the, the, Directly the, to the yeah, brain. Right in the brain, yeah. Neuralink. I think a lot about the pre-clearance, right, ideas and how they were a, um, you know, the, a result of like the Jim Crow South and the fact that like there was this need to critically look at the policy that individual states were using to either enfranchise or disenfranchise the voting system on a federal basis. And that comes out of a historical materialist context of, you know, chattel slavery and then, and then sharecropping and then, you know, like the whole Jim Crow the whole structure. But is it a bad idea that the federal government has preclearance on new laws that will lock various people out of the voting process i don't think so (laughs) i don't think that that should be like it would be one thing if if it uh went the other way where like if you tried to make it easier the government could be like oh no no fuck that right yeah it's it's mostly based on um these restrictive laws that all of these states have proved they want to and are capable of passing and kicking people off the the voting rolls and making voter ID laws and like all types of fucked up shit that allows people to be less involved in the democratic process. And you could say that that is explicitly a racist uh, set of policies and you wouldn't be wrong. Like they're almost entirely based around trying to disenfranchise people of color and especially poorer people of color. But at the same time, it's also just fucked up regardless of its racial inequity in terms of uh, effect, like the fact that you're trying to make the democratic process harder to get into should be something that we should all universally. Everybody get. should be able to vote easily. Yes. There should be polling places. Every, it should be a national holiday. Nobody yes. should have to work. Automatic there should voter be registration. Uh, yes. Automatic enrollment. Getting, uh, kicked off the voter rolls, regardless of whether you've done a felony. Yep. Uh, Never yeah, have to wait. Universal enfranchisement for incarcerated peoples. This is another thing that's mentioned in this intercept piece. The fact that, um, you know, incarcerated individuals show up on a census as members of your population, but they yep. don't get to vote, yep. which means that you have this reverse enfranchisement happening where places where there are uh, where incarcerated people are held, which is not where those people are from, now get access to greater resources because they supposedly have a greater population but now it's a one-to-one instead of a three-fifths so that's progress <laughs> <laughs> yeah right yeah i mean yeah numerically like, more yeah 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 you gave your vote to someone else but it's a full vote it's not three-fifths of a vote <sighs> yeah you know the, and what probably sends me even more into a rage is that the people i can imagine from the same mouth two arguments the first one is if you're mad about the current state of politics you have to go vote 
And then at the same time, isn't it great that we solved racism because we named a bridge after John Lewis? Right. right? Like, I feel like that's the same person. The same person as saying right? that. Right. Yeah, yeah. That cares about these facade, you know, like, like very superficial changes also says that voting is like super, super important. It's like, but you're not doing anything to make sure that voting actually does anything and that everyone can vote. Right. And as much of a legend as John Lewis was, there was a, uh, an, an argument in this article that I thought was pretty compelling, which is that even naming the bridge after him, when there were so many other people, so many yeah. lifelong yep. activists, so many people who were also shedding blood and tears uh, on that bridge, you know, during that time, uh, it, it, it's almost a form of erasure. And other people would say that's not really erasure. It's really uh, holding someone up as an emblem for other people. And and, you know, like the idea, though, that um, this fits into like a quote unquote great man view of history where there are like these particular, you know, stellar and disproportionately powerful individual voices and people that create the arc of history that we're all bearing witness to and a part of is at once a way of honoring those individuals, but also of erasing the fact that it's really more of a trends and forces and, you know, the, the hundreds of millions movements, of people. Yeah. yeah that it's are, not that, individuals, it's movements. Yeah. yeah. And it, like, I don't know, maybe they're like, Maybe there's a better name, like <laughs> for the bridge. How about uh, the fuck the KKK bridge? How's that for a name? I like that. Restore the Voting Rights Act bridge. Yeah. 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 Or like a universal suffrage bridge or something, you know? Yeah. I still like fuck KKK bridge. I think it should be the <laughs> fuck the KKK bridge, yeah. All right, fellows, wildflower. Wildflower. Are we ready to talk about something nice? I want a busload yeah. of wildflowers. You want a whole busload? Don't I do. you think that's a little it's a little selfish? No. <laughs> Don't you think you're asking for a little much? Look, the amount of flowers that you can move in a single bus versus the flowers that you can move in a fleet of cars, like the space that it takes up and the fossil fuels, it's... That is a very good point, actually. Yeah, man. Yeah. You're not wrong. So for our wildflower this week, uh, takes place right here in our lovely Troy, New York. Stations go up along the Blue Line route in Troy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to get a whole new bus line. Yeah. In uh, the Capital bus District. rapid transit line. Yes. Hell yeah. Yeah. So a couple... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, probably like six months ago now. I can't, I don't remember. There was a really we had a we had an episode where we talked about how uh, David Bryce, one of the largest uh, landowners in the city, was getting a shit yoinked by the state. Yeah. Um, expropriado, expropriado, expropriado. Uh, for um a major bus station, like like a um a real station station with like an it's like an indoor building and shit. Yeah, and um it's a, a hub for this new what's called the Blue Line, right? So right now. CDTA, the Capital District, Trans Capital District Transit Authority, that runs all the buses in, um, let's see if I get this right, Rensselaer, Albany, Saratoga, and Warren Counties, I think. I think that's all of them. Yeah, Schenectady is a county. Can we call yeah. it the thick blue line? Yeah. <laughs> like two C's. Those, those buses big boys yeah that's true uh, that's true big girls yeah <laughs> big big gender non-conforming buses. buses uh but yeah they they um they, we already have a red line that goes to schenectady it, it goes from downtown albany downtown schenectady and now they're gonna do two more a purple one a purple line that goes from uh the crossgates mall all the way to downtown Albany, and then one from 
uh, South Albany, the south end of Albany, all the way up to Waterford, uh, which is uh, north of just north of Cohoes. And it will uh, pass right by the Ironweeds Studios. Hell yeah. 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 And uh, so I would actually look forward to maybe like, you know, going downtown and then taking this blue line to to chris's house when we when we podcast hell yeah you know we could do that is it super it's super fast because it's only a couple stops right that's part of the bus rapid transit it gets um signal priority a lot of intersections so it gets to skip all the cars when it's (laughs) and And it's gonna have wi-fi and it's gonna have wi-fi which is the, the the red line already does, right? So that's a, a common thing for bus yeah. rapid transit. And it's, it's just going to be, I think it's going to be super cool. And you don't even need to pay for data while we're coming up for concepts yeah. on the way to the, the, yeah. the, the stud. Yeah. David, will you be able to take this to work? Technically, it would, it would be um, several transfers okay. still, right? So it would probably be the still, amount, still the same amount of transfers. So uh, if it were doing all buses, I'd need to take the 289 or the 286 from our house to downtown transfer to the blue line south and then would then transfer again to the purple line uh to get to campus but how but would it be faster it would absolutely currently be be like that's like a two hour yeah one one way yeah it's a it's like a 25 minute drive it's like a two hour bus ride currently it would probably read the whole time i could read the whole time no seriously like that david hates driving i hate driving can't read while you're driving can't read while i'm driving i already spend 25 dollars a year on a parking pass if i could spend 25 dollars a year uh on this bus brt line like that would be tight is it only 20 i don't know i i I don't know what the uh what the cost is but Mm -hmm. i i know that you know like i already get free like unlimited free travel on the regular bus routes with my u albany card Mm -hmm. right so i don't know how they would integrate Right now, you don't get anything with Bus Plus with with Albany, but now that they're basically serving the campus, like I yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, and it's called the Purple Line probably because well, Albany. one there's a red and blue line, so you know that makes purple, right? So you got to keep that normal, true, but yeah. also yeah, the colors of U Albany are gold and purple. So I I, I don't know, I'm stoked. Yeah, I'm very very Super excited pumped. to have a, a rapid transit yeah. bus line, and it it made it was made possible through expropriation of a landlord's stuff. And so that, cool. folks, it does not get much more wildflower than that. <sighs> Praxis. Praxis. All right, cool, good cool. story. Yeah. We're going to do uh, Lennon. We're going to close out chapter one today. We're going to yeah. talk about Engels, uh famous withering away of the state. And that is something that gets, yeah, you love to see it, folks. That's something that gets thrown around all the time by Marxists. And Lenin is going to unpack it a little bit more for us. Like, what does it actually mean in a practical sense when Engels talks about the withering away of the state? Yeah, because from an anarchist perspective, like not having read this line of argument, it's like, so wait, you're saying that the Marxists want to seize the state, use the state power to create the world that they want, and then just dissolve the tool that they use to create the world that they want, allowing for... I don't know what happens after that. Yeah. Seems sus. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it's a little sus. So, Len- so Lennon's going to get out, down into some more granular detail about what exactly that means. Um, and it's going to play heavily on the actual angle source material. So you'll get, again, another nice taste of that. I hope you enjoy it. I think it'll be just about it's going to I'm trying to keep these pretty short. I'm trying to keep them to like 10, 15 minutes. It's kind of like reading 10 minutes of a book a week, but I don't know. You guys let me know if you like it, if you if you like the short bursts or you want to do longer or, or whatever. Let me know what you guys think. 
And anything else? I don't think so. I think, I think that's, that's it. it. I'm going to yeah. have something coming out in Protean Magazine. Fuck yeah. Uh, yeah. About, about coronavirus probably in a couple of weeks. Nice. Will it be made into a podcast? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't read know. anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> reading is, it's 2020. Society yeah. has evolved yeah, past yeah. the need for reading. <laughs> yeah, just get Brittany to read everything for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Real Life podcast has been doing really well. People seem to be really enjoying it. I love it. I, yep. yeah, thank you. I'm it's really excellent. glad. The piece we came out with last week was actually about QAnon and like gamification oh shit i haven't and, heard that one yet um yeah aug- augmented reality gaming and yeah. conspiracy theory it's very good it's called this is not a game i really enjoyed the piece and yeah so it should be roughly two coming out every week for the foreseeable future i'm gonna try to see about getting into some of the back catalog stuff and doing that too but thanks to everybody who has been uh checking out the real life podcast it is a real life audio edition if you are searching for it on your podcast player yeah it's a, it's a big uh, lime green eye it is yeah that's how you know you'll find it you yep. found it nice all right all right in the meantime you can find us on twitter Ironweeds Pod. Find us on Instagram. Ironweeds Pod. Shoot us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. <laughs> bye. Uh, Patreon.com slash Ironweeds. Thank you so much. We love you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Peace. Part four The Withering Away of the State and Violent Revolution. Engel's words regarding the withering away of the state are so widely known, they are so often quoted and so clearly reveal the essence of the customary adaptation of Marxism to opportunism that we must deal with them in detail. We shall quote the whole argument from which they are taken. Quote, The proletariat seizes from state power and turns the means of production into state property to begin with. But thereby it abolishes itself as the proletariat, abolishes all class distinctions and class antagonisms, and abolishes also the state as state. Society thus far, operating amid class antagonisms, needed the state, that is, an organization of the particular exploiting class, for the maintenance of its external conditions of production, and, therefore, especially, for the purpose of forcibly keeping the exploited class in the conditions of oppression determined by the given mode of production, slavery, serfdom or bondage, wage labor. The state was the official representative of society as a whole its concentration in a visible corporation. But it was this only insofar as it was the state of that class which itself represented, for its own time, society as a whole. In ancient times, the state of slave-owning citizens, in the Middle Ages of the feudal nobility, in our time of the bourgeoisie. When at last it becomes the real representative of the whole of society, it renders itself unnecessary. As soon as there is no longer any social class to be held in subjection, as soon as class rule and the individual struggle for existence based upon the present anarchy and production, with the collisions and excesses arising from this struggle, are removed, nothing more remains to be held in subjection, nothing necessitating a special coercive force, a state. The first act by which the state really comes forward as the representative of the whole of society the taking possession of the means of production in the name of society, is also its last independent act as a state. State interference in social relations becomes, in one domain after another, superfluous, and then dies down of itself. 
The government of persons is replaced by the administration of things, and by the conduct of processes of production. The state is not abolished, it withers away. This gives the measure of the value of the phrase, a free people's state, both as to its justifiable use for a long time from an agitational point of view, and as to its ultimate scientific insufficiency, and also of the so-called anarchists' demand that the state be abolished overnight. End quote. It is safe to say that of this argument of Engels, which is so remarkably rich in ideas, only one point has become an integral part of socialist thought among modern socialist parties, namely that, according to Marx, the state withers away, as distinct from the anarchist doctrine of the abolition of the state. To prune Marxism to such an extent means reducing it to opportunism, for this interpretation only leaves a vague notion of a slow, even, gradual change, of absence of leaps and storms, of absence of revolution. The current, widespread, popular, if one may say so, Conception of the withering away of the state undoubtedly means obscuring, if not repudiating, revolution. Such an interpretation, however, is the crudest distortion of Marxism, advantageous only to the bourgeoisie. In point of theory, it is based on disregard for the most important circumstances and considerations indicated in, say, Engel's summary argument, which we have just quoted in full. In the first place, at the very outset of this argument, Engels says that, in seizing state power, the proletariat thereby abolishes the state as state. It is not done to ponder over the meaning of this. Generally, it is either ignored altogether, or is considered to be something in the nature of Hegelian weakness on Engels' part. As a matter of fact, however, these words briefly express the experience of one of the greatest proletarian revolutions the Paris Commune of 1871, of which we shall speak in greater detail in its proper place. As a matter of fact, Engels speaks here of the proletariat revolution abolishing the bourgeois state, while the words about the state withering away refer to the remnants of the proletarian state after the socialist revolution. According to Engels, the bourgeois state does not wither away, but is abolished by the proletariat in the course of the revolution. What withers away after this revolution is the proletarian state, or semi-state. Secondly, the state is a special coercive force. Engels gives this splendid and extremely profound definition here with the utmost lucidity, and from it follows that the special coercive force for the suppression of the proletariat by the bourgeoisie, of millions of working people by handfuls of the rich, must be replaced by a special coercive force for the suppression of the bourgeoisie by the proletariat, the dictatorship of the proletariat. This is precisely what is meant by abolition of the state as state. This is precisely the act of taking possession of the means of production in the name of society. And it is self-evident that such a replacement of one, bourgeois, special force, by another, proletarian, special force, cannot possibly take place in the form of withering away. Thirdly, in speaking of the state withering away, and the even more graphic and colorful dying down of itself, Engels refers quite clearly and definitely to the period after the state has taken possession of the means of production in the name of the whole of society.
that is, after the Socialist Revolution. We all know that the political form of the state at that time is the most complete democracy, but it never enters the head of any of the opportunists, who shamelessly distort Marxism, that Engels is consequently speaking here of democracy dying down of itself or withering away. This seems very strange at first sight, but is incomprehensible only to those who have not thought about democracy also being a state, and, consequently, also disappearing when the state disappears. Revolution alone can abolish the bourgeois state. The state in general, i.e. the most complete democracy, can only wither away. Fourthly, after formulating his famous proposition that the state withers away, Engels at once explains specifically that this proposition is directed against both the opportunists and the anarchists. In doing this, Engels puts in the forefront that conclusion, drawn from the proposition that the state withers away, which is directed against the opportunists. One can wager that out of every 10,000 persons who have read or heard about the withering away of the state, 9,990 are completely unaware, or do not remember, that Engels directed his conclusions from that proposition not against anarchists alone. And of the remaining ten, probably nine do not know the meaning of a free people state, or why an attack on this slogan means an attack on opportunists. This is how history is written. This is how a great revolutionary teaching is imperceptibly falsified and adapted to prevailing Philistinism. The conclusion directed against the anarchists has been repeated thousands of times. It has been vulgarized and rammed into people's heads in the shallowest form and has acquired the strength of a prejudice, whereas the conclusion directed against the opportunists has been obscured and forgotten. The free people's state was a program demand and a catchword current among the German Social Democrats in the 70s. This catchword is devoid of all political content except that it describes the concept of democracy in a pompous Philistine fashion. Insofar as it hinted in a legally permissible manner at the Democratic Republic, Engels was prepared to justify its use for a time from an agitational point of view but it was an opportunist catchword, for it amounted to something more than prettifying bourgeois democracy, and was also failure to understand the socialist criticism of the state in general. We are in favor of a democratic republic as the best form of state for the proletariat under capitalism, but we have no right to forget that wage slavery is the lot of the people even in the most democratic bourgeois republic. Furthermore, Every state is a special force for the suppression of the oppressed class. Consequently, every state is not free and not a people state. Marx and Engels explained this repeatedly to their party comrades in the 70s. Fifthly, the same work of Engels, whose arguments about the withering away of the state everyone remembers, also contains an argument of the significance of violent revolution. Engels' historical analysis of its role becomes a veritable panegyric on violent revolution. This no one remembers. It is not done in modern socialist parties to talk or even think about the significance of this idea, and it plays no part whatever in their daily propaganda and agitation among the people. And yet it is inseparably bound up with the withering away of the state into one harmonious whole. Here is Engels' argument. Quote, 
That force, however, plays yet another role, other than that of a diabolical power, in history, a revolutionary role, that, in the words of Marx, it is the midwife of every old society which is pregnant with a new one, that it is the instrument with which social movement forces its way through and shatters the dead, fossilized political forms. Of this there is not a word in Herr During. It is only with sighs and groans that he admits the possibility that force will perhaps be necessary for the overthrow of an economy based on exploitation. Unfortunately, because all use of force demoralizes, he says, the person who uses it. And this in Germany, where a violent collision, which may, after all, be forced on the people, would at least have the advantage of wiping out the servility which has penetrated the nation's mentality following the humiliation of the Thirty Years' War. And this person's mode of thought, dull, insipid, and impotent, presumes to impose itself on the most revolutionary party that history has ever known. End quote. How can this panegyric on violent revolution, which Engels insistently brought to the attention of the German Social Democrats between 1878 and 1894, i.e. right up to the time of his death, be combined with the theory of the withering away of the state to form a single theory? Usually, the two are combined by means of eclecticism, by an unprincipled or sophistic selection made arbitrarily, or to please the powers that be, a first one, then another argument, and in 99 cases out of a 100, if not more, it is the idea of the withering away that is placed in the forefront. Dialectics are replaced by eclecticism. This is the most usual, the most widespread practice to be met with in present-day official social democratic literature in relation to Marxism. This sort of substitution is, of course, nothing new. It was observed even in the history of classical Greek philosophy. In falsifying Marxism in opportunist fashion, the substitution of eclecticism for dialectics is the easiest way of deceiving the people. It gives an illusory satisfaction. It seems to take into account all sides of the process, all trends of development, all the conflicting influences, and so forth, whereas in reality it provides no integral and revolutionary conception of the process of social development at all. We have already said above, and shall show more fully later, that the theory of Marx and Engels of the inevitability of a violent revolution refers to the bourgeois state. The latter cannot be superseded by the proletarian state, the dictatorship of the proletariat, through the process of withering away, but, as a general rule, only through a violent revolution. The panegyric Engels sang in its honor, and which fully corresponds to Marx's repeated statements, see the concluding passages of The Poverty of Philosophy and The Communist Manifesto, with their proud and open proclamation of the inevitability of violent revolution, see what Marx wrote nearly thirty years later in criticizing the Gotha program of 1875 when he mercilessly castigated the opportunist character of that program, this panegyric is by no means a mere impulse, a mere declamation or polemical sally. The necessity of systematically imbuing the masses with this and precisely this view of violent revolution lies at the root of the entire theory of Marx and Engels. The betrayal of their theory by the now prevailing social chauvinist and Kotskyite trends 
expresses itself strikingly in both these trends ignoring such propaganda and agitation. The suppression of the bourgeois state by the proletarian state is impossible without a violent revolution. The abolition of the proletarian state, i.e. of the state in general, is impossible except through the process of withering away. A detailed and concrete elaboration of these views was given by Marx and Engels when they studied each particular revolutionary situation, when they analyzed the lessons of the experience of each particular revolution. We shall now pass to this, undoubtedly the most important, part of their theory.